Welcome to Emerging Technology Horizons. I'm Mark Lewis, the Executive Director of NDIA's Emerging Technologies Institute. And with me in this episode is Dr. Robbie Samantha Roy, um, well known to, to uh, so many of us in aerospace and defense, one of our thought leaders in, uh, in, in, in the whole area of emerging technologies. Um, Robbie um, has had a, a career that has included government and industry. Uh, you were at OSTP, you were a staffer on the Hill, you were a, a very senior at Lockheed Martin, and now you're the chief operating officer of, of a very exciting new enterprise, Electra Aero, that I hope we'll get to, to, to talk about in this episode. Um, Robbie, I, I know also you've, you know, you've done significant fundamental research, you've, you've done plasma simulations, you've also, you have, uh, let's see, bachelor's, master's, PhD from MIT. We shared thesis advisors, Dan Hastings at MIT. Um, you also have a master's degree from the George Washington uh, Space Policy Institute. Um, so welcome. Thank you for thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. My, you really studied my my resume. <laughs> don't, don't embarrass me with all that. <laughs> I, I should tell you when 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 the staff was saying, "Oh, here's the resume." I said, "No, I, I think I know that one. I think I know that one by heart." And and you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad to say we've we've been friends for for what more than three decades now, and and, and have followed each other. I, I think uh, and have had a chance to interact quite a bit over the years. So so again, thank you thank you so much for being on this episode. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I thought we'd focus on a little bit is talk about the, the, some of the challenges facing us in trying to introduce emerging technologies. Why, why do we have these challenges? Wh what are the obstacles that we get, have to get past? And I know this is something that you've thought about extensively in your government role and your industry roles. Mm -hmm. um, what, 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 what makes it so difficult? Well, thank you, first of all, Mark, for, for coming yeah. on the show. And, and yes, we, we are in the same academic family, going yeah. back to, to Dan Hastings. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, interesting that, uh, you know, with my background in academia and uh, in government, in both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue and now in industry, both from a large corporation, had seven and a half wonderful years at Lockheed Martin, uh, working in the CTO's uh, office and then in government uh, affairs, and now going to the other end of the spectrum, working for a startup company that is just uh, brand new from last year, focusing on the advanced air mobility market and looking at sustainable, uh, the decarbonization of, of aviation. So one of the challenges that I've seen over from many different perspectives from a technology perspective is, is essentially there's always the, the tech push community. The, these are the scientists, the engineers that have great ideas that basically push a technology. And we'll talk a little bit later about you know, the differences between inventing something and innovating on something because that's very important. But then you have the user community that is going to ultimately use that technology. Um, and as you well know from uh, you know, exposure to DARPA and this, the central role that the Heilmeier Catechism plays, both the DARPA, IARPA, and other R&D organizations, that first step of trying to understand the problem is really important because one of the key impediments in technology activities are either there's an idea that's being pushed that does the, the stakeholders don't fully understand what the, the problem they're trying to solve or that user community. And then there's the user community that wants something, but sometimes they're asking for something that's limited by what they know or they want to, in, in their request, they're asking for the solution indirectly. And what is so important is for those two communities to, to work together very closely. And what always will, in many successful cases, is you'll have a champion. Either one champion who has a foot firmly placed, that he or she will be firmly placed in both communities, 
or you have a champion on the user pull side, you have a champion on the technology push side, and they're going to closely work together. And I think that really is important. When you look across the, from historical perspective, many interesting cases where technologies have been fielded is because there's a technology that was solving a well-defined problem. You had users that understood and worked with the development community to basically ensure that it's not just a technology issue, but you work through policy issues, regulatory issues, cultural issues, workforce issues. Right? And, and you had the developers, you had the operators, you had the testers, you had all those others, the folks that provided the funding. They all were a community understood the problem they're trying to solve. And what happens in many cases is you have open-ended technology development without the user community uh, you know, basically providing that pull, or you have all this activity basically just trying to push a technology that, that may, be, uh, it may not be relevant or useful in the long term. So, so the Heilmar, uh, just, just for, for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Heilmar, series of questions that were developed by a DARPA, the DARPA director, Heilmar, right. that, that kind of get to you know, oh, what's new about a technology, how is it different than what's been done, who cares? What are the milestones? Right. It's a list of questions that exactly. DARPA program managers are usually asked to right. address before their their programs get 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 approved. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. That catechism is a very disciplined way of how to basically structure a program uh, that you want to get successfully funded. It goes back yeah. to Gerald Tiermeyer. Yeah. Question number one is, what's the problem you're trying to solve? solve. And sometimes right. that takes the most time and effort to frame the question, the problem. And, and then to propose something that, uh, you know, that has not been done before. Well, one of the things that I, I also like about the Heilmeyer is it opens up the possibility that something has been tried in the past, but right. conditions have changed, technologies have improved, something has, has, has been modified so that you can, it's worth trying again. That's right. Uh, could be a different different user community, for example. That's right. But and and a, and a great example here is is the new company that I'm with, uh, yeah. Electro.Aero, right. that was started by John Langford. You know the legendary, from Aurora Flight Sciences. From Aurora yeah. Flight yep. Sciences, a, yep. you know the legendary uh, aviation uh, you know entrepreneur. Um, so what we're doing, which is which is all out there, is we're we're looking at a, a hybrid electric, ultra short takeoff and landing aircraft that will provide an offering within this advanced air mobility market. The fundamental technology yeah. of how you're going to go do ultra short takeoff and landing comes about by basically a blown lift wing. Okay. This concept was, has been around since the late 60s and early 70s when the Air Force, the FRL, NASA worked it together. Right, right. But at that time, and we, we can get into the details some other time, but the details of how that was implemented would not be as effective or even affordable from a, from a long-term operating perspective. And, and so, but now advances that have been made in, in electric propulsion, mm -hmm. in the fact that you now have uh, you know, electric motors that can be finely controlled. Now when you couple that capability with the blown wing, now you have a concept where we think it's gonna be highly successful, where you can have a distributed electric propulsion system right. as basically providing the, the blown lift over a wing. Yes. And, and so yeah. this is an interesting case where the idea was a bit early before its time, mm -hmm. uh, although the C-17, as you know, from an yep. Air Force perspective, yes. did take advantage and you leveraged a lot of that. But from a really ultra short takeoff and landing perspective, we now with the, the advances in electrical motors, uh, in, in, in basically in digital uh, you know, flight controls of how you can tr provide pilot stability and the augmentation, et cetera, yeah. um, this is now a, 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 an example of where you know, a technology is at a point now 
we can actually try to essentially leverage it and, and take advantage of it for real applications. Right, and I'm assuming that you can also leverage uh, developments in hybrid powertrains coming out of the automotive industry, for example. Absolutely, right. absolutely. How you couple a turbine with, uh, with batteries. Right. And, and one of the big premises that, you know, in areas like this is like, how, how does technology you know, across many different sectors, how it works together? So things that are happening in the automotive side, yeah. some things have been leveraged even on the personal electronics device side, right? right, right. And, and how does that now actually migrate into essentially an aviation sector. But one of the reasons why we would do for something, for instance, as hybrid electric is because we feel that the state of the art of batteries in terms of their power energy density are not at that point yet where you can really have truly effective long range, uh, you know, essentially transportation uh, modalities. Right, right, right. So since you've got you've got the hybrid system, you 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 basically hedge your bet against again Begin battery yes. running it. Yes, exactly. That's right. So think about like the Prius and the Camry before you get to that Tesla. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. My my iPhone is always is always running out of out of power. So I would you know that's my perfect example of why I would never drive a pure a pure EV EV vehicle or at least wouldn't do it yet. Exactly. But that's right. But I did actually just buy a hybrid last last month. So there you go. So so fascinating. So so what what, what do you view as the market? Is it civilian? Is there a military application? There, there, there's both. As, as with all great technologies yeah. that I feel that firmly, there's always a dual use of perspective, right? Mm -hmm. There's you know, national security, there, there's economic security, yeah. if you will. And you know, in, in this market, what's, fa what's fascinating is the world of advanced air mobility really is essentially the confluence of two things. There's been a lot of interest on urban air mobility, right? Mm -hmm. the, the short mm -hmm. hop within an urban environment as well as the longer range regional air mobility. And I give a lot of credit to, you know, NASA has been uh, advocating for the technology development for this sector. Right. Um, as you know, this about a year ago, the National Academies, they did a study on, on advanced air mobility. Right. And, um, and so there's, there's, there is, you know, projections that this would be an extremely expanding market now, of course, we always have to be uh, guarded in, 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 and, and not to be too optimistic. I mean, look at the very light jet market, uh, you know, a number of years ago that yep. didn't come to fruition. Yeah. But if you look at how demographics are shifting, um, especially how the nature of work in, in this, uh, you know, the lingering implications from the, the global pandemic, uh, how are people going to travel? Um, coupled with the sustainable green uh, aviation right. push, right? This administration is very much keen on, on things of how we're going to address climate change, mitigate the impacts. Um, and so those, I, I think, are, are really some important elements. But then, you know, when you look at smaller aircraft, there's the traditional markets of executive transport, right. you know, medevac. Um, you know, the, the world of logistics is, is getting re reimagined, yeah. right? So when you look at, you know, not only long haul, but the middle mile. Uh, and then the last mile, when people talk about, you know, for instance, the drones that deliver that last package, right. how do you get it from the big airport to a smaller distribution center? So all of these interesting dynamics that are changing on the global logistics market are, are very interesting. And um, I think, you know, also one of the other implications on the pandemic is, you know, the global supply chain yes, has had right, some fundamental right. shocks. So I, right. I, we have to really think through that. How does just-in-time, you know, delivery really make sense for certain critical, you know, <laughs> For those of us parts? who are trying to buy toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic, exactly. we saw the, we saw the problems with that. That's right. Yes. So the, these are some really fundamental issues. But at the end of the day, we, we are taking a, a very long-term strategic perspective on, on all of this. And, um, and so as the confluence of all these factors come together, we feel that this is a very important uh, you know, uh, effort mm -hmm. um, going into a market. The confluence of technology is there. And, um, and it's not only just going to be within the US. This will be something that really has also international perspectives. But on the 
on the, the military side, I mean, the world of electric propulsion enables acoustically quiet, right. quieter right. operations. Right. And um, so you can now conduct uh, you know, logistics supply, infiltration, exfiltration operations. Um, and you can, you can now, with the, with the hybrid electric propulsion system, you're more fuel efficient. And you can take advantage of uh, electrical propulsion without having to deal with any ground charging infrastructure right. or swapping out your batteries. So right. you can use your imagination for certain communities in the in the military that would would definitely benefit. Absolutely, uh, stealthy, from... longer range. Exactly. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I can I can imagine you, you're you're you must already be thinking through ways to to um, incorporate um, stealth capabilities. Those sorts of yeah. So I mean, yeah. it's it's all about you know when you talk about electric propulsion, there, yeah. there's the acoustical signatures are, right, are very right, important right. Uh, you know elements to this, right? And um, and so that's not only important in the military sense, but also if you have a lot of these things buzzing around communities, right? You have to be worried about the environmental impact. I think that the the the, the long term important element here is worrying about the sustainability, long term sustainability of aviation. What's the environmental impact right. on the globe? Right. So it's not only going to be from an energy perspective, it's going to be about essentially that acoustical perspective, right? It's going to be about the emissions, right? And so all of that has to be taken into account um, and it has to make economic sense, right? right? So right. you're going to have to do this and think about this, not just the switches, switches are going to be flipped, but, but things are going to, to move in that direction. Are you, getting, are you thinking about a, a price point, for example, where Typical middle class family can afford. Well, or so, is that a is that is that a little further in the future? So I mean, the, thinking about the Jetsons. Uh, yeah, exactly. Know, that, yeah, I want right. my Jetsons flying. The Jetsons car. flying car. So I was promised I, not, that flying exactly. car. Exactly. So so this is something that I'm um, third week on the job. Yes. And yeah. uh, and so these are obviously some of the things we have to work with from an economic and customer perspective. But you know, clearly you've got to be. You cannot um, get entrapped in the uh, the Gartner hype curve here, Mark. Is one yeah. of the things I'm going to say, right? And yeah. so yeah. this gets back to turning around back to the whole point of technology. Yeah. This gets back to an important point of you know what are all those factors that are going to have to be aligned to ensure that there's a successful technology transition, yeah. right? And this is not just a tech push thing. This is also this is how how the broader set of of markets. You know, come together, and most importantly, the regulatory aspect. So, in in this case here, it's going to be the FAA, and so the FAA is, you know, has to go through a measured way. They are responsible for, you know, the world's safest airspace system, right? The national right, airspace right, system from a right. safety perspective. So, once you start to introduce new things, how is this done in a very measured way? Right. Yes, understood. Ensuring that safety is paramount yeah. at the system level, the vehicle level, the human level. Right. Air as well as ground, right? So this this yeah. integrated risk management perspective has to be taken into account. Yeah, and no, and we we fully appreciate the the folks on our uh, in in our company really appreciate this. But this gets back to your whole point about tech transition is you have to be very measured and deliberate about all these things to ensure your maximum probability of success. Right. I you know I like your point earlier about delivering basically I'll paraphrase delivering what's needed, not necessarily what. The user initially thinks they want. I, there's a you know there's a famous story that's told at DARPA. It might might be apocryphal. If it isn't true, mm -hmm. it should be true. Right. Where the the U.S. Navy the Navy SEALs had come to DARPA and they wanted um, faster underwater small personal submarines. So the Navy SEALs have these these underwater yeah. propulsion units right, right. And, and they weren't fast enough. And they came to DARPA and said we need this to go faster. Right. And and the DARPA folks ha were having a lot of trouble. And finally they said well why do you need this to go faster? And they said well our SEALs are sometimes operating in really cold water right. and they, they have to 
get out of that cold water as quickly as possible. Right. And the DARPA program manager said, well, why don't we just make you a better wetsuit? That's probably easier. Yeah, exactly. So, so you're, you're right about sometimes the problem is framed with a, an assumed answer, and the best answer might be completely out, out of the box, if you will. Exactly, which is, again, back, what's the problem you're trying to solve? So right. I think this is really important for, for your members. And by the way, Electra.Aero just became a corporate member. Welcome to NDIA. Thank you, thank you, appreciate it. So, you know, I think that's one of the, the interesting, uh, you know, sort of challenges in today's world, where we are in, in essentially a technological competition with a near peer, a peer competition, where technology plays a very, very important role and right. across all domains, right? Everything from space all the way down through the ubiquitous cyber arena. And the question becomes is, as we develop these new technologies, now with your last job at the yeah. department, right, you had this whole litany of almost a dozen different technologies that you're trying to push. Right, right. But the question becomes is that how does the, does the user community, in this case the services, how are they articulating the requirements? Yeah. What is it that they really need, right? And so there's, I always talk about there's requirements, the big R, there's requirements with the little R that really gets more to what you need. And we all know that there has been never any, there's never been a major transformative leap in military capability that ever came from a requirement with a big R. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, maybe there is somewhere behind a green wall, yeah. but, uh, but the question becomes is, there has to be this kind of give and take of uh, understanding what the problem, and I think one of the challenges we have now, like you look at Joint All Domain Command and Control. Right, JADC2. Joint Warfighting, that's right, JADC2, the Joint Warfighting Concept. Um, all of these things that are actually now being pushed with the individual services, with the Army's Project Convergence, with the Navy's Project Overmatch, with the uh, Air Force is, is doing with Advanced Battle Management System, right? Yeah. They're all approaching things from a, how are we gonna live in this ubiquitous connected world? Yeah. So the question becomes is, how are you, you articulating requirements for this? Right, right. This, I think, gets to the heart of the challenge that we have right now, is how are you going to be able to encourage experimentation, but still with all the right folks that you just don't have some sort of specially rigged event where there's no leave behind capability, yeah. but that you demonstrate something or you're, you're showing through a set of experiments, mm -hmm. you have a hypothesis, you demonstrate something that needs you, leads you to the next step, and that there is that catcher's mitt, so to speak, on the acquisition, the service side, the operator side, that says we need this. And how are you going to change that into a program of record, existing, or create something new that will actually really be able to increase that probability of transitioning. And so I think that's what the department is, is, is really facing you know, right now. And it, whether it is you know, this broader element of, of, of JADC2, or even the journey of how you take a, a new airplane yeah. and put it through. So, you know, so for instance, things like uh, you know, Dr. Mike Leahy at, at DARPA, mm -hmm. Has now you know has announced he wants to do something in in kind of this in the you know how do you how do you actually help transition some of these these programs this way and so I think all the services you know OSD have all these various activities and and part of the challenge is is that you know how do you kind of stitch together this landscape and from your previous position you you're, you're pushing things on AI you're pushing things on directed energy on hypersonics right. How do they all flow through the system to kind of a catcher's mitt that is able to then take it, if you will, you know, to an operational capability? So we spent a lot of time in the building talking about the valley of death, that valley that makes it difficult to get yeah. something out of the lab into the hands of the warfighter. 
and 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 one one of my colleagues in, in in the Pentagon used to say, you know, it's actually not a valley of death. It's a it's a mount, it's a mountain of death because there actually is a lot of money yes. that gets spent on prototyping and on demonstrations, but that never never finds a, a final customer or a final user. The catcher's mitt, I think, is as exactly. you as you put it. That's right. So hey, if I can switch gears a little bit, sure. You, although related, you you you've done a lot of thinking about the difference between invention. And innovation. Right, right. Could could you could you could you tell me your your thoughts on those 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 two? Right. So this is actually fascinating in the national yeah. security and national defense uh, you know perspective. So invention is is really the process of coming up with a, a new idea. You're creating something new, right? Yeah. You you're going to end up getting a Nobel Prize because you invented, you discovered something new. Innovation is a very disciplined process to take that idea and turn that into something of value. That value in a commercial setting could be it's a product that you basically commercialize, you sell. Um, on the military side, it actually turns into a, a military, relevant military capability, an operational capability, um, but it is turned into something of value. And that innovation process, while there is an element of you know, leveraging a lot of creativity, it has to be a very disciplined process yeah. of how do you sort of ideate how you investigate and you implement, right. if you will, these ideas. And, and I think part of the challenge is, is then is in large organizations where things are so structured, how are you able to uh, uh, create that space for individuals to not just only think about innovation on a purely technology side, but in many cases, it's gonna be about process, business models, con ops, you know, new ways of how we uh, employ and, and use the, the workforce or our personnel in the system, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. that, I think, is really important. So there's a big distinction. And, and by the way, the Defense Department, you know, many people say they're, they're always the, the first to invent something mm -hmm. and the last to, to, actually, <laughs> to, it, yeah. to actually adopt. Right, and, right. And, and electric propulsion may, or a blown wing may be an interesting example of how, yeah. you know, ultimately that, that true ultimate employment is something that may be driven by a commercial sector with the military still helping but these ideas went back to original government research, right? right. And so right. I think what is the challenge now that the government has with like things like artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. but a lot of the fundamental mathematical algorithms, the underpinnings for many of the things within artificial intelligence that you know DARPA, AFOSR, ONR, ARL all helped. Um, worked closely with the, the the fantastic academic community in the U.S. Yeah. Right? It wasn't until you had these large-scale computing. Uh, you had access to large data, and you had this financial incentive from large tech companies that basically saw this explosion, if you will, in what DARPA would call second wave or machine learning driven AI. Yeah. And now you come back full, full circle back to the department. It's like, how are we going to leverage this? We have to establish a joint AI center. We have to go do, the, do this and this. Yeah. So now the question becomes is, it's the innovation of adopting that for, for all the various purposes that you need in the department. And that's part of the challenge is it's, it's about the culture. Data. Who's going to collect the data? Where are you going to where are you going to archive the data? Who's going to be in charge of the of archiving the and, and the integrity of the data? What are your standards? What are your standards, yeah. right? And so all of these these are the, when you have so many if you will cooks in the kitchen, yeah. then things become very difficult. I see one of the things that that the departments have to do is work very closely with industry to align a lot of these standards. What are the lessons learned in big data that we can apply? Of course, there's other extra elements of security that have to be provided, right? right? Right. But I think this is going to be really 
really important in some of these areas for a very close government industry relationship to leverage that innovation that has taken place out in the commercial sector and bring that to all the specific applications that the department So the, the, the irony, by the way, of the U.S. government planting the seeds for artificial intelligence and then trying to play catch up and, and leverage commercial, that was not lost on us when, when I was on the E-ring. Oh, we absolutely. We talk about that quite often. Absolutely. And the National Security Commission on AI, they did a the great job, you right. know, I think of what is it, 728 pages of their final report. Yeah. But it's pointed out not only the software and all this other sort of, supply, uh, of, of you know, supporting technology, but even on the hardware side. Right, right. right. The, the fact that you need specialized hardware now and the whole aspect of what's happening with uh, essentially um, integrated circuits and right. the whole advanced microelectronics uh, sector, these are, all, these are all things that are really related. Right. We, again, when I was you know, in the building, we spent a lot of time on microelectronics. And that was a, a similar situation where the Department of Defense is now several generations behind the commercial curve. Yep. This is an area that the Department of Defense helped start, helped, you know, some of the fundamental Absolutely. work that led to this. Absolutely. And now is having trouble getting on the commercial curve. That's right. So, so um, we, we, the Emerging Technologies Institute, we've, we've got our work cut out for us in, 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 in getting that message across. Absolutely. Um, hey, so, so as, as we wrap up, I wanna, wanna, wanna pick your brain a little bit about workforce issues, mm -hmm. right? How do, you, you spent a lot of time in your career, and especially at, at you know, previous position at Lockheed Martin, but all, uh, interacting with with academia, uh, uh, mentoring the the best and the brightest in in the aerospace That's and defense right. sector. Um, what, where are we in terms of our technical workforce, and what do we need to be doing to ensure that we've got the best and the brightest minds available to work on the problems of interest for national defense? Yeah. So. Mark, this is this is a this is a huge topic, and uh, it almost that's like a whole separate uh, you know discussion of itself. So we can there, do that. We can, <laughs> there's a, we'll so, bring you back. <laughs> so there there are there are a number of sort of salient points to point out here. Yeah. Number one, there is it is critical. There's been none, not another time in our history, I think, where the the government, the national security sector really needs top technical, scientific and technical talent. Right. Yes, there was this whole push during uh, you know, the space race, Apollo set off an entire generation. Many of our mentors, basically they got into aerospace or just technology through that, that big push. But now with how things have, uh, have so globalized and the speed at which technology is getting innovated on, it's very important. And the question then becomes is how do you recruit and you retain talent? Right. There's a couple of things. So, so first of all, is you're not going. You're going to have to have to come to grips with. We are not going to keep people in one job in one sector their entire careers. Right. That is that ship has sailed. So the question becomes: Is how does government, and industry, and even academia all work together as with a one national purpose of how we basically take talent and enable them to flow across these different sectors. This is not a new idea. There's a lot of folks in, in OSTP in the past that have, have kind of thought through this, that how are you able to let individuals gain experience, they're trained in academia, they may do some research, they go into government, they come into industry, and how do they flow back and forth? There are a lot of impediments in able to do that. Conflicts of interest, you know, people talk about, but we have to worry about confluence of interest. Right, right. And, I love that term, confluence, okay, confluence of interest. confluence of interest, right? And right. so I think that is really important to take a look at regulatory policy impediments that don't allow 
uh, individuals to do that. We have to obviously have egregious conflicts of interest in mind, right. but we have to realize the broader issue is is a confluence of interest. I think that's important. The and then the other issue is we've got to recognize that um, our government needs that technical talent to also go into senior leadership positions. Right. We've got to have, and it may not be the, <laughs> the super researcher, but at least you're technically literate to be able to make these decisions and not, you know, years down the road realize, oh, my requirements actually, it just violated some law of physics. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Right? right. And so right. I think that, that, is, that is really important. So the, the flow and the, and the ability to actually give incentives for technical people to basically take senior leadership positions. But individuals that are not just great technically, they're going to have to be able to be very cognizant of that user community mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. be able mm -hmm. to almost have, I, I always sometimes joke, you need a social studies degree too, to be able to deal with all the diplomacy and things like yeah. that because that is so important uh, in, in today's world. Yes, I think we both know examples of, of absolutely brilliant people that you would never put in the Pentagon. No, no good could come of that. Yeah, but, exactly. but I agree with you completely. We really do need the best and the brightest making these decisions because of how important they are. Exactly. And, and lastly, you know, like how DARPA does, you know, the, what is great about DARPA is you come in with your, your, your ex expiration badge, understand that people are going to come and go through the system, right. contribute, gain experiences elsewhere, and flow through this, this system. And their ultimate goal is to advance the national and economic security of the nation. Robbie, I'm going to let that be the last word. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I hope you'll come back, because we've just, we just scratched the surface of some Absolutely. of these issues. Wonderful. Thank you Great. so much, Mark, for the opportunity. And, and good luck uh, with the ETI. It's Thanks a wonderful very much. opportunity. Thank, Thank you. you.